Welcome to the Little Red Village podcast, produced by Little Red Fashion. CEO Jonathan Joseph and head historian Rachel Elspeth Gross are about to take you on a journey through the ins and outs of fashion, tugging at the threads of how it all works straight from the people who make it happen. Let's join them for today's episode. I don't remember if I found Henry Wilkinson on Instagram or if he found me, but either way, when I understood what he was working on, I had to reach out and see if he would be willing to talk to Jonathan and me. Henry is a fashion historian who specializes in Givenchy and Audrey Hepburn. He's got this habit of finding, acquiring, and then bringing back to life pieces from the house that have stories which might rival the women who wore them. Henry distinctly remembers, as a child, being gifted physical copies of the classic films My Fair Lady and Breakfast at Tiffany's. For Henry, his early love of fashion is permanently entwined with Hepburn and Givenchy, although he will admit to a certain amount of Cecil Beaton's influence. Two weeks into lockdown in the United Kingdom, Henry found, to borrow his words, a tangible link to the past. Not many of us could see a listing for an early 1960s Givenchy bodice, plus maybe five inches of skirt, and see something special, but Henry did. And now he's completed the process of restoring what has turned out to be a significant, one-of-a-kind piece from more than 60 years ago. If that's not enough to impress you, after a ton of research, it turns out that the dress had originally been owned and worn by Lee Razabell, Jackie O's sister. Now, COVID projects saved a lot of us, or helped a lot of us. And in many cases, those projects helped set the tone and the pace of the way we've spent the past few years. Henry's dedication is a lovely example of how it was possible to persevere, even amidst the constant onslaught that was the first year of COVID. Of course, most of us did not discover literal fashion treasure a few weeks into lockdown. But when Henry did, he took it further and revived his discovery. And when he did, he made it into something more special than what he had found. And now it's years later, and Jonathan and I get to introduce him and his work to you talk about what he's accomplished and how, what he's setting his sights on next. And personally, I can't wait to see what he does. Hey everyone, we're back here with a new year and a new season of I Can Do That. We are here with Henry Wilkinson and he has generously given us some of his time today to talk about some pretty incredible detective work, I guess. <laughs> Maybe that's it. You do some really incredible work with extant garments and surviving haute couture from prior decades. How did you get into that? That really started as a hobby. It wasn't ever something I thought that could feed into my work and my career. But I've always had, I think, a love of restoring pieces. It all started with a love of clothes and the history of clothes. It started with an interest in costume and clothes on screen, mainly from film from the 1950s, 60s, some into the 40s and 30s, but really what I would think most people consider the sort of golden age of Hollywood. That was my gateway into vintage fashion and I think fashion in general. So there was, there's always just been this fascination for me with these pieces and clothing is such a tangible link with the past, especially if there's a name or a face connected to these clothes. It could be a celebrity or it could be your grandma from when she was young. It's such a tangible link to that person at that time. 
So that's how it started, really. It was just this, found my grandma's wedding dress in her attic, which had been flooded. And so it was all stained and there were a few tears. And, and I decided to restore that and make it look as it should. And that was probably my first restoration project. Um, how old were you? Amazing. I was probably maybe 16. It's really um, cool. So yeah, that's sort of how it all started. And it's all sort of snowballed from there, really. Can you recall what your first and earliest fashion memory was, maybe from one of those old movies, those classics, or what that early, like, this has caught my eye, oh my God, I have the fashion bug now? For me, it's always kind of embarrassing to admit, but it was, I was seven years old and I watched Titanic for the first time. And I think that was the first moment when I understood the power of clothing on screen and just the power of clothing in general. I remember so distinctly being so sort of hypnotized by these clothes. I was so interested in them, not just because they were this part of history, but because I liked the look of them as well. And I, I didn't know until that point that it was someone's job to create those clothes and that this was a gateway into the past. And everyone was crying at the end of that film for very obvious mm. reasons, but my seven-year-old self was just very upset that the nice clothes got wet now. All the clothes were gone. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The true Titanic yeah. tragedy. Especially yeah. that red dress. All the oh my gosh, stuff. yeah. So that was when I first, I think, discovered clothing on screen. I, I'd say that was more costume on screen. And it was because of that that I was then given a copy of My Fair Lady and Breakfast at Tiffany's, both Audrey Hepburn mm. film, because it was actually my family who gave it to me. They knew at that point and understood that I loved clothes on screen and costume and so they thought I would like those films and that for me even though it wasn't the first moment it was the moment with the biggest impact for me was like that light bulb that really big light bulb moment absolutely it was seeing Audrey Hepburn wearing clothes by Givenchy and everything about it for me just fit there's it's the aesthetic with those two created is completely in keeping and fits in with my own and that's where it all started for me was that was the biggest impact was watching those films what two films i mean that's a pretty i mean cecil beaton is the other end of it like that's like obviously those are great you know films for clothing but when i was a kid my mother was the librarian at the beverly hills public library and there was like a reading room in the kids section where you could like project stuff on the screen. So I used to go watch similar movies. I used to sit there by myself in the dark and watch, oh my gosh, I love How to Marry Millionaires, another one probably from a similar era. That I, I mean, any movie where there's a fashion show. For the 500th yeah. time, I will shout out The Women, which was like a formative, <laughs> formative, formative movie for my fashion consciousness. Those absolutely. hats. It is absolutely fantastic. Totally relatable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I see, I was looking at your information on online henry and i see you went to the royal central school of speech and drama was that for like costume design was that for theater yeah that was for costume design so that was always my career goal was to go into costume and it's still a big passion of mine and something i i would choose to continue working in as well as what i'm doing now but for me it was costume always was so exciting to me because it was this idea of fashion is creating clothes to be worn by everyone and costume is creating clothes to be worn by one person and it's a way of storytelling which fed into those early films that I watched and understanding that the clothes were a part of that storytelling and so I studied costume 
It was from that moment I decided I wanted to do costume and everything relating to fashion and fashion history, more of, of a hobby to go with that, to feed into that career in costume. So I worked in costume for a while. I graduated from my degree. I worked with Netflix on Bridgerton. So working in costume and then the pandemic came along and that's industry almost totally closed. I think so many people within the arts, regardless of whether it was in costume or any sector of, of the arts as a whole, had to reevaluate what it was they could do in the meantime, while their whole industry had closed. So I was really just looking for a project to keep me occupied. And that's when I found the, the Givenchy dress that I then went on to restore and then turned out to be Lee Radziwill's dress and Rest. So I think I, I read some of those, but for our listeners, would you would you you found it in a in the costume department? Is that correct? At a I found it on eBay. Okay, uh, all right. All places I found it on eBay. I was just scrolling through. It was I think the second week of lockdown of the first lockdown <laughs> here in England, looking for something to do, and I collect Givenchy pieces as well because again, it's that idea of it being a tangible example of his work and and everything that he achieved. And I came across this very sad, worn-looking bodice with about four inches of skirt left on it, and the rest had been cut off, and it was all frayed, and it didn't look in great condition. But the thing that stood out for me was the, the beadwork. It had this incredible embroidery and beadwork on it, which just it just captured my imagination. And I heard from the seller that there was supposedly it had once belonged to Jackie Kennedy. And I always take those kind of stories with a big pinch of salt because it's a lovely idea, but realistically in the collecting world, there are people mm-hmm. who have those stories just to boost the value and get more money. But I sort of decided, I took it upon myself to make that my lockdown project. I had suddenly time on my hands and I wanted to restore this dress and make it as Givenchy originally intended. It's kind of my goal is to keep his work in this collective consciousness of, of ours and keep it going. So I got it and that's when a period of almost a year of research started into this dress, which is the research is my favorite part. So it was great. Me too. I completely and totally understand. <laughs> just lose myself in research. I love it. And I can go through thousands of photos and little newspaper magazine articles. And so for a large amount of time, I was researching Jackie Kennedy and her connection with Givenchy. And Givenchy was one of her favorite designers. But as uh, the first lady, she wasn't really permitted to wear anything other than American design. She was there to sort of celebrate and represent American design. And so a huge portion of her wardrobe were copies of Parisian designs made by Oleg Cassini. And so I spent a lot of time looking into that and trying to see if, trawled through thousands of photos of Jackie Kennedy, trying to find any of her with this, wearing this embroidery or something like that. And that then consequently led me on to learn more about her sister, Lee Radziwill, who was also a big client of Givenchy until 1962, when the two had quite a public falling out, which is a very interesting story to read about. But I decided, yeah, I looked more into Lee's wardrobe as well, because I thought, well, it, 
it's still got a Jackie Kennedy connection. And I was sharing this process along the way on social media. And then a few months later, a follower sent me a photo of Lee Radziwill wearing the Givenchy dress that I was restoring. It was a very exciting I moment. Bet. It was crazy because it was that moment that I realized that that connection that I was told about in passing was true and that suddenly this piece was so much more than just, just a Givenchy dress, which was important enough to me, but then you suddenly add this context of who wore it. And then it sort of led on to finding out, okay, well, we knew that Lee Radziwill wore the same design, but how do we know that this dress is hers? And that for that, I just used my understanding of Givenchy as a designer, because at this point, I'd been researching and specializing in his work for over a decade. Did you uh, work in his, his archives? Yeah. So I worked in the Givenchy archives in 2019, and they invited me over to Paris to go work in their archives for a little bit because they sort of understood that I had this knowledge of Givenchy and his work and and it was quickly becoming part of my work in fashion history is specializing in, in Givenchy and so it was with that and also the consulting the archives with this Lee Radziwill dress that we found out that only one of these dresses was made which meant that the one that I was restoring was worn by Lee and the story is still evolving I had a follow-up about three weeks ago maybe send me a photograph of a book that they were reading, which I think was just about interiors. And in one of the photos on a mannequin staging in this interiors was the dress. The story keeps evolving. I found out the dress was sold in, in the 90s at auction. And before that was sold in the 60s by Lee Radziwill. So it's still evolving. It's, I'm still finding out more about this dress. But it's, it's still so exciting, all this research and finding out more. The part where the skirt was chopped off. I'm assuming that's, well, I know because I've read about your stuff, but would you tell our audience about how you went about dealing with that particular challenge? Yeah. So that was the most glaring difficulty with the restoration. Thankfully, the, the beadwork and the embroidery was all remarkably intact. There was fading to the beading, especially looking at photos of the dress 20 years ago when it sold at auction. The color was much more vibrant. I have a slight suspicion that someone tried maybe cleaning the dress. Maybe it could be dry cleaning or even a washing machine at the state that it was in. So a lot of that colour was lost from the bodice, but it must have damaged the skirt beyond repair, well, at least according, you know, in the previous owner's view. But that was because it was made from a fabric called silk zibeline, which I'd never worked with before until I came across this dress, and that was a part of the process was trying to determine what the fabric was so that I could recreate it as best I could. But something I found with the silk zibeline is that if you get any kind of crease in it, if you lean on it and get a crease or if you fold it in the wrong way, that will scar that mark. And it, it's so difficult to get that mark out of the fabric. Part of me wonders whether it, it, that was why someone cut the skirt off because they tried mm. washing it. They'd scarred the skirt with all these creases and these lines, and so their decision was to, to cut it off. But to recreate it, I found a matching zibeline that was just in, in an ivory color. It was in a plain ivory color. And 
you know, scouring the market for for a color match that could be identical, but I just couldn't find anything. It's this really interesting, I call it rose gold because it looks pink in some lights and like this deep creamy gold in some other lights. So I decided that the best course of action would be to dye some plain fabric to match the original. And for that, I collaborated with a wonderful textile conservator, my friend Sarah at Atelier 9. She's helped me with some of my pieces before. And together we made samples and different dye baths to try and find a color match until we found one that worked. And then once we had the fabric, I could then take that and recreate the skirt using the fragments of the fabric that I had. But also what was great is that I had pieces in my collection that I could use to try and piece together the, all the missing pieces. And so I finished the skirt and it was only after I'd finished the skirt that I then found photos of Lee Radziwill wearing it, full length photos. And thankfully it looked the same. So Awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> No, I, I hadn't seen a photo of it at all throughout this process, so I didn't know whether the skirt was short or the skirt was long or what kind of length it was. And so the decision I made was if I make it full length, like it's an evening gown, then worst comes to worst, I find a photo of her wearing it and it's short and I can then shorten it, but I can't do the opposite. So thankfully, when we did find the photo, it was the full length evening gown. So that worked out well in the end. Yeah, I, what I was going to ask, and I'm sorry, I, I, this kind of thing makes me like a child, when you were saying that you had pieces in your own collection that you were able to use as references, that like pieces from the same year or similar styles, and you were able to just, not just, I don't mean to minimize, but obviously it's going to work, but kind of like intuit how, what was supposed to go where and then like that? I mean, I didn't know at that point what exactly the year was that the piece was made, but from what I knew of Givenchy and the style of the dress, my guess was between 1960 and 1962. And so I was using pieces from my collection from that time period. And Givenchy used a lot of construction methods that for me is a great indicator as to whether a piece is authentic or not. These sort of little signature things that he would do. And so being able to replicate that. But I had a couple of pieces in my collection, one from 1960 and one from 1962 that I used just to look at the construction methods and see that they were flatlined with silk organza, which is something that he did quite often because he said that it gave the pieces tenue, which is its body. It gave them body and structure so that they would lie smoothly and, and hold their form. And so that's what I re replicated on the skirt that I did as well and hand-finished all the seams by hand, just all these little, little finishing details. But having those pieces just as, as reference was invaluable research really and just part of the process that is just so exciting for me to do that having that it would be impossible to recreate something like that not that basically blindly without that working knowledge of those signature elements i mean i, I think that's a wonderful the fact that you didn't get the image until after the fact i think is, is a testament not only obviously to your skill and, and depth of knowledge but i think the importance of just a combination of ingenuity and nasty, which is something we always talk about here on these, these interviews, because for kids especially that want to get into fashion history, restoration, potentially costuming, we always tend to have this conversation about the fact-finding piece and that being an adventurer of 
fashion is doing exactly what you've done and, and using those references to amalgamate, you know, a solution. Definitely. I think that was a whole part of the, the process for me, but also the most exciting thing was being sort of looking under every, not leaving any surface unturned and looking under everything and, and that idea of tenacity, which I, I once got told that I was tenacious as a negative a few years ago. And I really took it to heart and I felt so sad that someone thought I could be tenacious. But now I kind of take it as a compliment because it's like, yeah, I just keep going <laughs> until I can find an answer. It's it's important with this kind of, I guess you could call it detective work. It's it's all part of that. It's it's all the, it's the fun of it. <laughs> I would imagine that a background in costuming, just by nature of the craft, was extremely beneficial in that because, you know, I've heard many costumers say, for example, that the detective work is half the battle, whether you're trying to age a textile that's new to look like it's old, whether, again, the serial dye baths to get that proper rose gold effect. I mean, I think the science part of it and that you're going through trial and error is also essential and it's also something I think our younger listeners should take to heart like you gotta experiment in the words of the magic school bus you gotta take chances you gotta get messy <laughs> definitely and i always wanted to do with costume i wanted to do design but i deliberately chose to do a course that almost exclusively focused on construction and making because for me it was so important to understand how these pieces and costumes would be made so that I could design them well. I knew if I could, if I had that understanding of how they would be made, then when I was designing these pieces, I would at least have a, a basic understanding of how they would come from sketch into, into real life. It's not a method that everyone chooses, but it was, it's one that I still, I still stand by, I think. I really enjoyed being able to learn not just how to design, but also how to make as well. It appeals to me and I completely understand. And I think one of the differences between apparel design and costume design, like you said, it's, you know, for one person versus, you know, a whole market or demographic or whatever. But it's also about making something for the stage doesn't have to be, or the screen doesn't have to be exactly perfect. It just needs to look right. And how better to know how to make it look right than to understand how the garment was actually constructed. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. Sounds like so much fun. I mean, the stories, this is something that Jonathan and I come back to all the time, is how much we appreciate and how important the stories are. I was just taking notes here about what you've been saying, and I'm realizing, like, yes, the dress was important just because it was Givenchy, and then it was important because of Lee wearing it. And it's like your story has kind of added to that, and it has a further legacy, if that makes sense, because now this whole generation of people who maybe would have never even known who Lee was it's a through line and that's such a cool thing i hope you're very proud of yourself i'm a mom <laughs> <laughs> i'm very proud of the, of the project and just being able to bring that story to light and the idea that the time i've had with it and to restore it is now part of its history and it's so interesting to me it's one of those stories that you know you sometimes hear those things of these incredible like 1950s deals that were saved from dumpsters or something it's the things that you can't quite believe, but it's such an exciting and interesting part of their story to look at. How could something that was considered like the height of French haute couture suddenly be thrown in a dumpster only to be saved at the last minute? And it's so interesting to me. But that's kind of been some of the other pieces I've found in my collection. Is, it's been 
similar things. And it's so exciting to me to be able to uncover, I don't know, that part of their, their history and, and, and adds to their history, I guess. Well, it does. I mean, the act of preservation and restoration is what allows that bridge from the past to be built to the future. And I think too often in the world of, for those outside the world of fashion, or whatever, however you want to define that, it's often difficult for people to see that through line or see that bridge or understand why that bridge is important. And I think your story really drives home, especially through the material science part of it, in terms of why would this skirt be cut off in the first place? Oh, because the silk is extremely delicate and these textile sciences come to bear, not only on that, you know, from that angle, but also in those serial dye baths, in how you had to work to recreate something. And I think all of those things encompass exactly why we at Little Red Fashion do what we do in trying to show people who may not be within the world of fashion, but have kids that want to be, that don't have answers to all these questions, to be able to see that fashion isn't just a pretty dress on a hanger, a mannequin, or in a photo. It combines so many different skill sets, paths, specialties, and that intersection is where the magic actually happens. A lot of magic. So we're, okay, and you may not know the answer, so forgive me. What's, where's the dress going to go? What's the ultimate goal with it? I don't know. <laughs> no, and that's um, fine. I completely understand. I <laughs> I'm finding out about it, always finding information constantly. It's part of being a fashion historian is every day finding out something new. There's some things with the skirt that I've recreated that I want to go back and change first. And it's always a learning experience. So I feel like I haven't quite perfected it just yet enough to let it go but set it free yeah, <sighs> yeah let it free. but something that is incredibly important to me is that now that this piece although it was almost lost now that it has come back to life I guess it's it's so important to me that it stays that way and I would love to sew in, the, in a museum collection or maybe even back in the states you know it's such a big part of history as well because it's a dress that she wore as part of the presidential tour around Europe as well. And so I haven't quite decided yet, but I would want to ensure that it was going to a good home first. Forever home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you write a book about it, please tell me so I can buy it because I really want to read it. <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, the future, I think, as you're talking about the home for this dress, I immediately went being the tech founder nerd that I am, you know, 3D scan it get it into the metaverse, put it, you know, digitally preserve it as well. You know, outside of being an extant garment, I'm a very big proponent of digital archivization because I think on the one hand, it's important to obviously preserve the extant garment, especially after the journey that this one in particular has had. But I also think the idea of digitizing certain elements of collections is really important to get younger people involved because they're digitally native now and so just putting that on your radar i'm not saying or not saying that that's something we're working on at little red fashion but rose gold rose red saying you know. yeah i genuinely <laughs> haven't even thought of that I <laughs> i've thought of maybe like oh, i don't know i'm taking a pattern from the dress so that it, i'm digitizing that so that the sort of dna the construction the foundation of the dress is is preserved but I can't speak for FIT, but I know they have a digital garment scanning set up. Yeah, I've not actually thought of that, but it's, uh, I think you're absolutely right. It's technology is, and the world of the digital is changing the way that we can document and create archives in, in the sense that not too long ago, in the field that I do as a, as a fashion historian specializing in Givenchy, I would have 
bookshelves with folders filled with printed images or magazines mm -hmm. of his work. And now they're all digitized. They're all in files for me to look at. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, that's something we're passionate about here. It's old-fashioned now. Like, it's going to keep going more than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something we're, I'm personally extremely passionate about and that our, our advisors and I are really working hard on is, is putting together things like digital 3D fashion museums that scan garments and put together these kinds of future-thinking archives and treasure troves, really, to make these things more accessible and to make them more interactive as well. Yeah. Without having to touch the garment. It's like that, right? That's the conundrum <laughs> of fashion history. Like you want to explore these garments, but even just mounting it is putting it through stress as a, yeah. as a textile. Absolutely. In the light. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what you just said about the archive and keeping things more digital made me think of books and how I cannot stop buying them. Last year, Jonathan and I, whatever our individual budgets were for books, they were gone. Um, <laughs> there are particular Givenchy books that you like, or is there a particular fashion history book that you would think? Uh, with Givenchy, it's unfortunately there aren't a huge number of accessible books about him, which is something I hope to change in the future. There have been books published about him, majority of them are now out of print, or they're purely, they're, they're coffee table books, they're just photographs. And don't get me wrong, that's also a fantastic way of learning visually, is looking at photographs. The most comprehensive and I think the only official biography of Givenchy you can still get it is all in French I actually think I have it here oh yeah Hubert de Givenchy by Jean-Noël Lyon awesome. and it is a very comprehensive book that Givenchy did interviews for he was a very private man but as I say it is all in French so not perhaps as accessible to as many people but in terms of books that aren't necessarily focused on Givenchy Oh, I have a couple. Can I name two? <laughs> you can name as many yeah. as you would like. Our book <laughs> is ever expanding. I'm halfway through reading at the minute that I'm really loving is, over here as well, actually, this is my desk, there's books everywhere, is The Battle of Versailles. I don't know if you... We love that Oh, book. Robin Givon's love book. that book. Yes, absolutely phenomenal. Fantastic. It is... One of my favorites. I just wrote for a third grade reading and literacy exercise for our workbook to accompany The Little Red Dress, an entire exercise about the Battle of Versailles, actually. It's like a reading comprehension exercise that talks about the Battle of Versailles. Now I have to look for it. It's right in front of me. <laughs> it's, um, as I say, I'm halfway through, but I'm loving it. It has that connection to Givenchy as well that, that mm -hmm. keeps my interest. But just this whole evening and that moment in fashion history and the way it's written i think is brilliant it offers such a great contextualization of every designer that was there that night and the reason it was so significant so yeah that's one of them yeah, that's uh, a good one she's such a talented writer yeah you found it yes you got it thanks to the battle of versailles your third grader can learn about simple sentences independent clauses and compound sentences love it that's Perfect. amazing <laughs> jeez i wish i had that kind of education <laughs> and just making the things that 10-year-old me really, really wanted. It's like the whole... So yeah, Battle of Versailles is one that I'm loving. Another one, I don't know if either of you have managed to get your hands on a copy of this yet. It's a new book about Rebe, the embroiderer. Oh my goodness. No. It was written by my lovely friend, Nadia Albertini. And again, I will say that my edition is French. This is the first edition, but I believe it's potentially being translated, but Rebe was one of the greatest embroiderers and beaders of 
mid-20th century haute couture, same level as Lesage, but I think often overlooked. I think it's got these incredible up-close photographs of the embroideries. She's only found the original embroidery samples, but also matched them to the dresses that they were made into by uh, Dior, Balmain, Givenchy, Yves Saint Laurent. Even if you don't understand French, just Mm -hmm. looking through and seeing these up-close photographs of... It's got archival photographs from the Givenchy archives. Oh, Oh, my goodness. I've loved flicking through that as well. Yeah, that's going on my list. Just thinking the same thing. (laughs) Add it immediately. No, I love... And that... There's all of these houses that don't have the same name recognition as Chanel or whoever, but Mm -hmm. have been making the detailed work that we all see on these runways that we all love and are obsessed over. And I mean, massage, definitely. So many. I'm so glad that there is an initiative in place to make sure that that type of craft work, artisanal craft work, dedicated, just a whole house that pleats. I mean, (laughs) where would fashion be without the métier, right? I mean, yeah. Just be on paper. (laughs) (laughs) Perish the thought. That's terrifying. Well, wonderful. This has been lovely. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, Henry. No, absolutely. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. I think this was such an expansive interview for our listeners. I'm really excited to get it out to them. And I'm so thankful because I think what you are doing is so important in terms of, again, bridging that gap between the past, the present, and the future through your craft and through your own two hands. It's something that I think, again, is so expansive, especially for young people that are interested in getting into the field in whatever capacity. It doesn't even matter if it's costuming, restoration, archival sciences, any of that. I think just, again, back to that tenacity word, that's something we're really trying to instill in the future, you know, mover shakers, lovers of fashion and the industry itself because that's how the industry moves forward and how we keep these things alive which is so so important so thank you so much for joining us on this episode of i can do that part of our little red village initiative and welcome to our newest little red villagers thank you so much it's been so lovely to talk with you that's a wrap for today visit us at littleredfashion.com where you can find the show notes and transcripts of little red village podcast episodes on the blog And if you enjoyed it, give us a four-star review on whatever platform you're listening through. We're on a mission to empower the next generation and build a community of supportive fashion lovers, families, educators, and professionals like you to help creative kids thrive. Thanks for joining Jonathan and Rachel today. And remember, fashion is for everyone.